0: to season three of Gill Athletics Connection Podcast. If this is your first time here, we're so excited you hit the play button today. If you like what you hear, check out our library of hundreds of past guests that is sure to give you value. For everyone else, we're so happy you've come back quick favor, if you haven't already, consider taking a minute to rate and review the podcast. This simple act helps amplify these amazing stories, and we just love to hear your feedback. Heck, we may even read it out loud in a future episode. Okay, that's enough of an intro, right? Let's get to it. See what today's guest has in store for us.
1: All right. Thanks about, Thanks for coming back to the show. I can't even speak. I'm so uh, just in awe of today's guest. You've already seen his name on the podcast episode. I just want to jump right into it because I think, uh, you know, I'm all about bringing value and I think today is going to be a thousand percent value. So help me welcome the wise, the wonderful Mr. Russell Dinkins. Russell, how are you, sir?
2: I'm doing all righty, doing all righty. Uh,
1: if, if you're watching on YouTube, you, you got your name, Russell D. I feel like that's like your rap name or something. Like, I feel like I should change mine to Mike C or something like that, man. I love it. I love it. Russell, yeah. But do you even, you know, we didn't talk about this. And of course, this has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today. But I love talking about whatever. But I brought up rap. What kind of music are you into? I'm a big mm. hip hop guy. That's why I ask.
2: Oh, uh, cool. Um, I listen to probably the the – Kind of like a, a more experimental R&B um, or so, yeah. So like R&B that is a little bit more kind of underground or has a little bit of a house influence, like 90s house influence um, also that has a neo soul or kind of a um, kind of an older school rap influence. So yeah. I do listen to some artists that kind of bridge, you know, rap and R&B. Uh, but none of them are like super, super popular. So I don't really, you know, um, but I but I do listen to a lot of other things. I listen to pop. I listen to K-pop. I listen to world music. I do uh, listen to, um, you know, listen to some rap. Um, and I, not some of the newer stuff. I really, yeah. you know, the rap that I, I enjoy most is kind of in the 90s. <laughs> so so you, uh,
1: did you watch the halftime show then? The I did watch the halftime show, yeah. yeah. I, I was on the road, so I didn't get to watch it. But my wife and I, because she did get to watch it, we rewatched it. Oh, man. Yeah. That's right up my alley. I I mean, Snoop and Dre and Eminem, that's what I grew up on. The Chronic CD, it it was the best. Now it's all, it's actually all what they call CAH, Christian hip-hop. So it's Lecrae and KB and Triple E. Right. That's that's who I listen to now. Right, right, right. Okay, so none of that was value to you listeners, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, so excited, Russell, to have you here. You know, if you don't know who Russell is, I'm going to give him a few minutes, seconds here to give us a 30,000-foot level. But honestly, if you just Google Russell Dinkins track and field or Russell Dinkins podcast, my man is super experienced on this. In fact, I just listened to a podcast last month um, with you and the good lawyer uh, that we met at US TFCA. T- tell me his name. I got to give him respect. Yeah, Arthur Brown. There you go, yeah. Uh, And some of the things that they've done with Clemson and Minnesota, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But we're really going to focus, Russell, on proactivity. So this should be listened to by every college coach, want-to-be, future college coach, etc., administrators. We're going to talk about the state of track and field for college and what we can do proactively moving forward. Uh, But before that, Russell, why don't you give us like a 30,000-foot level, kind of give us that bio, who you are, what you've done, and what you do now.
2: All right, great, well, thanks for that. Um, Yeah, so as you guys know, my name is Russell Dinkins. Um, uh, Since uh, the summer of 2020, I have helped to save four track and field uh, teams, men's teams that were slated for elimination uh, by using a variety of different tactics uh, from social media to traditional media, Uh, and also a legal strategy. Uh, I got into this work uh, by happenstance. I wrote an article after Brown University decided to cut their track and field program about the racial implications of that decision. As a lot of us know, track and field is a very racially and socioeconomically diverse sport. And it is much more diverse than other non-revenue or Olympic sports, which tend to be very homogenous along racial and socioeconomic lines. lines. And so um, that article went viral. Uh, Brown uh, changed their decision. Um, The Brown University uh, team, um, they organized themselves. I mostly wrote an article um, to help uh, that team. But then after that program got saved Uh, I kind of became the go-to guy um, and uh, was able to help other um, university uh, teams strategize, organize, and ultimately win uh, their teams um, after getting, um, after they were selected for elimination. So the teams that we helped save were Brown University, University of Minnesota, uh, William and Mary, and then the last was Clemson, which involved the legal strategy. Um, Since then, I have been brought on as the executive director of the Tracksmith Foundation, which Who's which the mission of the organization is to help bolster and support and advance track and field as an equitable opportunity provider um, across the board, and so not only helping colleges uh, that are slave for elimination, but also looking at how we can support track and field at the grassroots level, um, at the youth um, level and beyond. And so uh, we'll be doing lots of great work. I'm really excited about the opportunity. Um, we're just starting, so we're still building out the uh, organizational scaffolding right now, but um, you know, looking to make some announcements about some of the projects we're going to be working on the next coming months.
1: I love how you brought up about track and its diversity, because you brought, you brought up specifically the sho- social economic status, uh, racial status of uh, diversity there. It, it, it goes even beyond that, right? Body type, h- hot, tall, short, big, skinny, short, uh, uh, fast, slow. Uh, I was slow, so I kn- that's how I can tell you it's, it's, <laughs> it's diverse for that. Uh, but I do, that's what the thing that I love about track and field over every other sport. And, and somebody right now is thinking, well, football, linemen and receiver. And it's like, yeah, 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 no women. We, we ain't there's not a, a, an equal amount or even close to an equal amount of women uh availability in that sport um but i, I just love that i mean i love literally like anybody who, who is anybody can do something in track and field we're not all gonna be state champs and all americans and pros but you can contribute in some form or fashion to your high school team your middle school team etc man i love it It's, it's that's one of the things that drew me to track and field uh, way back in the day uh, from the get-go. A- actually, I thought it would be really easy is why I joined track and field, and I found out that is not the case. you got to work hard. You do have to have that aspect uh, for you there. Wh- when you know you've been involved in these different programs, Russell, what is your – i was gonna i want to ask you like what's your education background i mean did you major in i don't even know what in the world you would major for something like this uh or is this kind of happenstance that you just you know because it was a fellow ivy league school you wrote that article and then you became the quote-unquote figurehead for this which that's okay happenstance is a good thing too as well what's that is there any background there for this
2: you know it's funny i was thinking about uh this uh a little while ago and (laughs) It's funny how things kind of prepare you uh, for other things in the future and you don't necessarily even realize it. So I I majored in sociology um, in college. Um, And so, you know, a lot of times people ask me, why are you majoring in sociology? And I didn't even really have a great answer for it at the time. It just was the only major that seemed to have the kind of mixture of interests that I wanted to study. Um, But I didn't really see how I could make that applicable um, to kind of like real world situation. But sociology was great because it forces you uh, to look at kind of societal uh, issues and to look at data and to make inferences based off of the data, um, to make really clear arguments about um, society and about the impacts of certain decisions. And so I, you know, that kind of training that I got through my um, uh, sociology courses and the and the independent work that I had to do, um, you know, directly translated into some of the work that I'm doing now. I mean, also with Princeton, um, which was which which is where I went to school. I went to Princeton University. For those who don't know, um, we have to do independent work. So I had to write a junior paper that was about thirty pages, and then I had to write a thesis It was about a hundred something pages. Um, independent uh, research uh, on Um, topics and I focused on the experiences of low-income students in college Um, and so just being attuned to that and knowing the data and knowing how low-income students um, uh, uh, have different challenges and experiences in the collegiate space uh, was really really helpful. But then when I think about uh, more broadly my first, my first real job was working at Princeton University, and that came from a, from a proposal. Um, I was speaking to an administrator after I graduated, kind of complaining um, about how I felt Princeton could be better in certain areas. And this administrator said, yeah, you should write a proposal to the university. So I said, you know what, I will. So I wrote a proposal and said, hey, you know, I just graduated from here, but um, I think that Princeton uh, could be better in this way, this way, and this way and they hired me (laughs) for three years. And um, it was in the role that I helped create. Um, It was uh, to uh, support uh, first-generation and low-income students. First-generation, for those who don't know, means the first generation in their family to attend college. And so, and, you know, people will think Princeton University, the Ivy League, there aren't many of those who fit in that category. And that was true. That was true when I was a student, but, the makeup of the student body has changed drastically, which is great, but um, that means that there were a lot of students who uh, didn't necessarily know how to navigate an Ivy League space. And so, um, you know, I created programs and resources um, from scratch uh, for three years. um, And it was really great. Um, Some of the data and programs that I created still exist at Princeton um, even after I left. And, um, you know, so that was kind of, a small foray into it, but I, you know, I kind of think I've always had a little bit of a zeal for kind of challenging systems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, in high school, um, I was in Massachusetts uh, for uh, for high school. I went to boarding school up there. I'm from Philly, but I went to boarding school in Massachusetts, and Massachusetts did not have a web administrator for mouse split, um, at the time. And so, me being 16 years old, I knew that I needed to be on Mile Split in order to get recruited. <laughs> and so, it, um, I emailed the Pennsylvania webmaster for Mile Split, and said, Hey, there's no webmaster for Massachusetts. I'm from Philly, the second third. I'm an athlete that's trying to get recruited. And he said, Okay. Well, I can't do anything about the webmastering thing, but what I can do is I can give you access to uh, to uh, to your team, and then you can make your profile. So coaches are only supposed to have access to a team, but I, but I got access to my team, so I was able to create my team's profile. Then I was able to create my own profile so that I could um, – and then after that, I emailed meet directors so that I can get into – um invitationals that would upload to mouth split so <laughs> because i was like i need to get seen because running at the prep school um, lee i mean the prep school circuit we just competed against other prep schools and mm-hmm. dual and tri meets and then there was a prep school championship that didn't upload the mouth split either mm-hmm. and so there was no way to really be visible and so I knew that I needed to kind of get outside of that if I wanted to get recruited. And so, you know, I was like, all right, well, I need to get into these meets, but I also need these meets to have that data uploaded to something. Um, and so, yeah, so that was very, very, you know, and I think a lot of other, you know, so, yeah, I've always kind of been like, okay, I need to, if there's something that doesn't exist, let me figure out how to create it. Um, kind of a, a kind of entrepreneurial spirit. And so, um You know, I didn't necessarily realize that, uh, you know, kind of all these kind of experiences that I've had uh, really naturally led into this organizational work um, that that I've done now. And um, the way that I got into it, um, honestly, I was talking with the Brown organizers right after the school um, announced they were cutting their program. And I was talking to them, and I was angry, and they were angry. And I said, hey, an op-ed needs to be written about these points. And they say, yeah, we're trying to get an op-ed written. We're trying to work with the Washington Post, New York Times, and, you know, traditional outlets. Uh, And that's a really reasonable, rational kind of way of of approaching it. Um, And I said, okay, that's cool. And then for something, for some reason, it just struck me, I need to just write something. So I wrote something on my personal Medium page, and my thought was I could write it, and then maybe Brown could use what I wrote to show traditional media outlets, so that they could, you know, cover the story. Um, but I just didn't really realize that, uh, or unbeknownst to me, the, the thing that I wrote would be the actual catalyst um, for change, and uh, the thing that I wrote would be this uh, piece that would go viral. I mean, I. I did not have a large platform. I had 400 followers on Twitter. Um, I've written about five pieces on Medium before writing this one. And the the most uh, readership that I've gotten before that was about a 1,000, you know, from one of my pieces. So I wasn't expecting, I didn't write it with the intention of, oh, this is going to get viral. I was just writing it um, really because I just felt like I just need to get these ideas out. And then two, I thought, okay, if I write this, you know, they could. Show this article, like with all these arguments, to a uh, to a traditional outlet, and then uh, maybe that traditional outlet would be, you know, convinced that this is something worthy of covering or worthy of, you know, writing their own op-ed or something like that. Uh, so yeah, it just um, kind of uh, you know, but then after that article went viral. Um, when it came time to helping William and Mary and University of Minnesota, which I was reluctant to do, because I was really, you know, when those teams reached out to me, I said, "Hey, I wrote an article, and that article helped to <laughs> help to uh, publicize or or make
1: bring awareness. It helped
2: to like, yeah, I think it spread awareness about this issue in, in the public domain." But I didn't do any organizational work. The Brown University uh, alumni and uh, students and parents, they they organized themselves and they were doing, you know, work behind the scenes, you know, talking to influential folks at Brown University. So I was like, I don't necessarily, you know, you guys are reaching out to me. I don't know if I can, mm-hmm. you know, um, can replicate what I did for for Brown here because all I did for Brown was, you know, Write an article, and it went viral. And I, you know, I worked hard after I saw that article went viral. When I saw that article was picking up steam, I then reached out to uh, uh, Let's Run. I reached out to um, a, a different uh, um, different uh, people with large uh, Twitter followings. Um, we finally got Malcolm Gladwell to, to retweet I was working hard on that, so mm-hmm. it's like I spent about a week, um, you know, the entire week uh, that the article was out before the university the university reversed their decision within a week. So that was pretty cool. Yeah. But um, I, you know, basically spent my entire day um, just uh, online looking through Princeton alumni. Mm-hmm like databases to see like who had a large twitter following and, and emailing them the story and and you know and just trying to get as much of a push of the story after i saw that it was picking up steam and that it was going viral naturally i was like, okay well let me you know uh kind of use that organic you know kind of uh, movement um and be strategic about it and try to push it out um but yeah so with the with the university of minnesota and with uh and with william and mary i was like guys i don't necessarily know if i could do this but you know, let me, let me, I, let me try. And it w- really was the impetus for getting involved was when the University of Minnesota went down, when they announced they were cutting their their, their, their team, I was like, okay, this is going to be bad. This is the first like power five school. Mm-hmm. It's like, I need, not to say that I didn't care about William and Mary, mm-hmm. but it was I saw that this issue was gonna get worse if, if I didn't get involved. Um, and so I hit up two of the core organizers for Brown, Brent Smith and Jordan Mann. Jordan is an elite um, steeplechaser. He competed at the Olympic trials this past year. Um, and said, okay, uh, let's build a toolkit um, based off of the organizational stuff that you guys did at Brown. So built a toolkit um, full of resources and then we also created a video, and we kind of walked through exactly how they organized and structured themselves. Um, and then I provided that toolkit to William and Mary and to the University of Minnesota's organizers, um, helped them organize. Um, and then after I gave them the toolkit, I had Zoom me- had a Zoom meeting with um, William and Mary and with um, and with. Uh, the University of Minnesota's organizers uh, just to kind of discuss how they can organize the structure themselves. After that, I kind of did check-ins with both. William and Mary, they were able to kind of move a little bit uh, more independently. Um, They just had, um, they had uh, the capacity to kind of do things a little bit on their own. Uh, With uh, University of Minnesota, I was more involved in that uh, process and, uh, you know, uh, was a part of all the organizational meetings, uh, providing strategy on how they could leverage an effective message. Um, And for University of uh, Minnesota, I wrote an op-ed that uh, got published in the Star Tribune that probably was one of the important factors in getting their outdoor team reinstated. Um, So yeah, no, it's just a long story short. I kind of got into this work. Um, uh, <laughs> part of me, says happenstance, but you know, I, it, it <laughs> upon reflection, it's been become clear to me that, wow, I've had a number of experiences that have given me kind of uh, background to be able to kind of enter into this space, um, you know, uh, and to have success I mean you know someone who's never done organizational work like this um you know to be able to jump into it and to be able to help three schools organize and and be successful um you know it was truly kind of like a a blessing so
1: yeah I love the story all the way back from high school in Massachusetts of this proactivity of you you, you saw that there was a, a a need that was missing the the mile split and you're like well I, you didn't go your story wasn't I'm gonna go find someone to do it you're like uh, or I'm gonna complain that it's not there you're like all right well, how do I get access and I'll, I'll do it and then you graduate from Princeton and you're like man I think you guys could do better and, and I love that I don't know if you talked to an administrator or a professor and they said all right right, we'll write a proposal because that, that's really key because a lot of people will complain and then when challenged to do something about it like well it's not for me to you know who am I you know it's easy to back out of it And you're like all right I will write a proposal <laughs> and that led to a, a job that you created those are special jobs you know, it's, it's one thing to get a job and we should all be working in the, in the, in a field that we have passion for, but to create your own job that's that, that's what a Princeton grad would do. Of course, Russell. I love it. I love it. <laughs> and then, uh, and then I love that the, you know, the thought process of writing that post that went viral for Brown was like, you, you were almost like trying to give like, um, it sounds like anyway, uh, not the content itself, but like, oh, here's the background for the content now. Washington Post and Times and the Brown News. Take some of this data and my viewpoints from having, you know, because you had permission to be involved, right? As an athlete, as an Ivy League athlete, specifically in track and field, specifically an African American, because that's what this topic was about with Brown. Um, And and you know, I'm a huge social media guy, as a lot of people know, especially on Twitter. Um, Like I. When when Brown changed their mind, when they you know did the right thing and, and kept what they were supposed to keep and not drop what they were supposed to drop, like I gave them a lot of props. And I had some people like, "Why are you giving them props?" Like, "Hey man, like it's a big step to say I was wrong." Even in the fa- even if you think, "Well, it was only because Russell did this and the students did this," great, they still easily could have stuck with their guns. And said, no, we've made a decision we're not going back right it's hard to say I was wrong <laughs> and to, and to, to change your mind so I gave all props to Brown and uh, I give half props to Minnesota right because they, they they kept that door but they didn't do indoor and uh, and of course Clemson and, and William and Mary uh, you know, I'm proud that they made the right decisions and you know realized the mistake they made and uh, reversed course there, so um, I wish they wouldn't have gone through all the cost and hassle and emotional angst that they they went through. But I, I'm very glad that for future generations, as we move on here, people will be able to go to those schools and participate in track and field and get the key of it. Is exactly what I said right there at the beginning to go to those schools. Those are those are great schools to go to and get educations, not like Princeton or Troy. That's the top two schools <laughs> in, the, in the universe. You know, tr- Troy we call the Princeton of the South. So it's kind of yes. makes a lot of sense there. Well. I love that your background there is really keyed on that word proactivity, that you went out and did stuff instead of reacting to stuff, you would be proactive to it. And that's really what I want to focus on today with you here, Russell, is, you know, every college, you kind of started saying this, you know, when you said Minnesota was important uh, because this could be a, a bad domino, right? Uh, and we kind of saw that not necessarily that clemson did it because of minnesota but we saw now clemson a you know powerhouse in the acc and a powerhouse in the ncaa dropping track and field it, it gives administrators sometimes cover that oh well look if clemson did it see i, I can do it over here at such and such university so um yeah. what we need to be thinking about in my opinion is no matter what college you are at whether you are at arkansas nca and t UCLA, Troy, Bowden College, Nebraska, Ker- Wis- Wesley, it doesn't matter that I, d- I don't want to put the fear-mongering out there, Russell, that like you're always on the chopping block, but I'd rather be preaching to coaches that they should be proactively doing things to preserve and thrive, survive and thrive their programs. So what are some things, Russell, as, y- as you're talking to coaches right now that are in college, they have not, th- there's no indication that they're they're going to be dropped, but they think, you know, in my head, I should be doing stuff to make sure my program doesn't get dropped. What are some things that maybe coaches should be focusing on besides the X's and O's on how to coach?
2: Gotcha. Yeah, great question. So um, firstly, what I will say is uh, (laughs) a number of the programs that we worked with, uh, apparently the alumni and staff communities uh, were pretty blindsided by um, well, I mean, staff, I mean, uh, the track and field staff specifically, mm. uh, Oh,
1: the, the coaching staff, they, um, no like heads up.
2: Yeah, no, apparently, um, a lot of these decisions kind of blindsided, um, these schools there was one school, um, I won't, um, mention the school just, you know, to protect the, uh, the coaching staff there. Um, but there was one school that said that they did upon reflection could see, um, that things were happening because, uh, there were certain, you know, budgetary restrictions and things like that, that had been occurring in the years prior. And then there were also, there was another school where, um, uh, the administrators told them, okay, yeah, don't worry about recruiting for next year or something like that. Oh, that I'm um, sorry, that's a,
1: that's a big red flag. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when yeah. they tell you, I mean, that's the lifeblood, right. Especially for track. Cause we have, you know, upwards right. of a hundred plus, if they tell you not to recruit, automatic red flag 100 right right, right,
2: right right so yeah it, this is like second or third knowledge so um it was something to the effect of um you know it was something regarding recruiting and you know uh um you know oh yeah you guys have already recruited enough or something like that it, it was something to that effect um so but uh, a lot of these um uh coaches you know said that they didn't necessarily realize at the time, but, uh, you know, retrospect, they realized it. Um, but in general, a lot of them did feel uh, pretty blindsided by, by by the cuts. So that's not to kind of uh, encourage paranoia, you know, amongst all the coaches. Um, I'm not trying to do that at all. But it's just to let you know that um, it is something that can occur even at institutions where it doesn't seem likely or probable. And one thing that I did mention at the whew, okay, let me try to get this the US TFCCCA convention. I got it right. Was that was uh, that one of the national media outlets that reported on the Clemson story after Clemson announced that they were they were reinstating their track and field team after threat of lawsuit. <laughs> lawsuits, lawsuits, uh, you know, I have to add. Um, you know, so they didn't come to that decision of their own volition. Um, this reporter told me that uh, a number of that there was apparently a meeting between the AD of Clemson, Dan Radakovich, and a number of other ADs at top universities and also conference commissioners. And this meeting occurred uh, not too long after Clemson announced they were cutting their track and field program. And apparently at this meeting, uh, there were um, uh, talks uh, about how Clemson was able to do it and other conference uh, commissioners and uh athletic uh, uh, ADs were chiming in about how they could potentially replicate something at their institutions or, you know, within their conferences. Uh, now, this reporter said that he did not have enough um, kind of evidence to publish this detail, but that it came from a pretty solid source. And I also heard this information from another person. And so, you know, I can't, you know, say that this is, that this, you know definitely for sure happened but it seems very probable (laughs) or it it seems like it is a real possibility that it could have occurred um and so get
1: your opinion on that Russell sorry to cut you out there because that actually so so a lot of times and you know most communications happen through social for me so social media when this stuff was going down there is this you know anger and I understand anger and we sometimes don't Really flesh out what we're thinking, especially on social media world, right? Um, that there's this anger that there's like this secret, and I'm going to describe exactly what you just described. Unfortunately, that there's like this secret cabal of college administrators that hate track and field, and that's why they're dropping it, right? Um, I've always fought against that mainly because I have a little bit of personal experience with it. When I was at Ball State, I was on the women's coaching staff. We had separate teams there, uh, and our new AD at the time, who's now the AD at University of North Carolina, Bubba Cunningham, uh, dropped men's track and field. And when I was leaving to go to Mississippi State, you know, I went in, we, we kind of had this uh, relationship because our last names were the same, and you know, I was from Alabama, but he was the one called Bubba. I, I don't know, just, you know. Uh, but uh, so I went in and was like, hey man, just, you know, I'm, you know, I'm going to Mississippi State, etc. cetera. Uh, no hard feelings, you know, I feel like, you felt like you had to make a business decision. And he really did like track and field. I mean, so much so that I was a lowly women's assistant coach for two years and only one year under him, I believe, if I remember correctly. Years later, I visit North Carolina and I go to his office to see, just to say hi. I knew knew he wouldn't even remember me, you know, or anything. And and thought I'd just get blown off. Like he would just, you know, tell a secretary, get this guy out of here. He came out of a budget meeting to say hi to me, remembered me at the very least, maybe didn't remember my name, but like we remembered like uh, that I worked under Sue Parks and all that kind of like, like, he has some intentionality with people and relationships. But you just described that secret cabal <laughs> that I, I fight against that is like, that can't be true. What is your opinion on, it, it is do administrators in general, this is a big overstatement, right? Cause there's uh, thousands of different people who make up this group called administrators. Do they have something against track and field, and what in the world could it be? I, I don't understand.
2: So I don't think it's I uh, I don't think it's personal in that way. I don't think they just have a a an aversion uh, to track and field as a sport and concept. Uh, that's not okay. the sense that I get. Good, good. The sense that I get is that uh, a lot of have like departments view track and field and more specifically men's track and field as just a nuisance um, because it is a sport that in aggregate you know is pretty expensive uh, now it's not expensive per capita it's not expensive by season it's it's actually not an expensive sport at all but since track and field t- typically carries large rosters and since, it's three seasons of play um, instead of one season of play. You know, let's be um, real. It's three sports um, as a part, as as, as NCAA counts it. Um, but, you know, their universities are able to conveniently just count it as one sport when it's advantageous for them. <laughs> they count it as three sports when they when they count up the number of sports they offer, but they count it as one sport when they're talking about budgetary right. um, issues, which is, you know, they're having their cake and eating it too because uh, they also – You know, uh, as coaches, no, you know, coaches are being paid, you know, to coach multiple sports, you know, but they just get one paycheck, Um, (laughs) uh, you know, for, you know, for, you know, double or triple the work of, you know, um, Mm -hmm. of of other uh, college teams. So, yeah, Um, the, yeah, so I, (laughs) yeah, so that, that was, um, I just kind of lost my train of thought a little bit. so, So
1: you think it's more of just the nuisance? Yeah. The, thank I, you. I like how you put that, the cake or eat eating, too, because, yeah, it's three sports when we count cross, indoor and outdoor. Uh, when you have the women's team, those three sports help counteract for Title IX reasons for the football, things like that. But when they're looking at cutting track, they're typically looking at at one sport, like, OK, I'm a, this coaching staff, this uh, 50, 60 uh, kids. It's all one in that world. That, that, that's an interesting take on that.
2: Right. Right. So. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for getting me back on track there. Um, you know, no pun intended. But uh um, <laughs> we're pun intended, you know. Yeah, <laughs> but um we're good. Yeah. <laughs> so um yeah, so <clears throat> yeah, I just think they, they view it as, you know, as being a nuisance because uh it's okay, it's a it's a sport that, you know, like I said, an aggregate is expensive, even though I already explained that, you know, it's not that expensive when you break it down. But an aggregate, it's an expensive sport. Um, And also for Title IX reasons, Um, you know, as coaches know, um, Title IX uh, proportionality, universities can either add more women's opportunities or they can take away men's opportunities. And the biggest bang for your buck, you know, if you take away a 50% male track roster, uh, that ends up being about 90 Title IX opportunity slots. And so, if you cut track, you have financial savings, but then you also have um, title, nine sa- title Nine kind of savings. And I think that combination is why track and field ends up being a a really attractive kind of target when budgetary or Title Nine issues come up. Because here's the thing: when I looked at the, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but when I looked at the uh, financial reports for the different schools I worked with at least for Minnesota and for Clemson track and field did not have the largest net loss um, at the end of the year baseball and oftentimes soccer did um, so you know they weren't the most they weren't losing the most money from track and field they were losing more money from these other sports but those other sports didn't provide uh kind of the title IX benefits that track and field w- would provide and also, in some of these places, uh, th- those sports have more of a kind of connection to the community. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't really speak to soccer, but baseball um, tends to be a little bit more popular. Uh, people go to those games, and so there's a bit more of a cultural connection. Mm-hmm. And then also with the schools that I worked with, um, the baseball teams were a lot more entrenched in kind of the uh the political infrastructure of of the school what i mean by that they have presences uh on the uh on the trustee boards um they had strong alumni um kind of organization and we'll get into you know that's kind of one of the main things that i think uh college coaches for track and field can think about but how do you get more integrated into that sphere because i think that's the biggest way to kind of protect yourself because you know uh soccer and and um baseball and specifically baseball they were not targeted at these two institutions even though they lost more money Hmm. baseball lost a considerable amount more money compared to track and field in in both of these cases Um, and yet you know they were not considered And, and my argument has never been you know that those teams need to be removed instead of track and field right but it's just like if you're if you're saying you need to remove a team due to financial reasons, this is not your biggest financial sink. <laughs> you know, there are other programs that actually incur a larger cost when you account for revenues and expenses. And yet track and field is the target. And so um, I think they view it as a nuisance for all three of those reasons. It's an expensive sport. It has a big title nine cost in terms of male participation and then they're not getting anything out of it in terms of cultural or political value mm-hmm. um and so you know, you know there's no connection to the community people don't really care about it in that way i mean we care about it but like the broader community there's not really that connection there um in general i know there's certain mm-hmm. track and field programs that that do have really strong connections um but in general that's you know not necessarily you know a, a um Uh, a big thing. And then two, there's not, I mean, again, this is just anecdotal, but all of the schools I've worked with, so Brown, University of Minnesota, um, William & Mary, and Clemson, none of them had a alumni kind of infrastructure in place. They now have them, you know, which is good, you know, and they're, and they're really being intentional about making sure that those Um, kind of organizations live on and are strong, but they didn't exist uh, before the the teams were cut. And just speaking to other coaches, apparently that's not unique to these institutions. Um, And so, you know, I know it seems like a track field coaches, they have so much to deal with, um, you know, and really that should be something that's headed by passionate alumni, but you know, in order to be resilient, I do believe that these uh, programs need to start uh, a strong alumni kind of organization. Um, And then if something is started, the alumni should be able to keep it running on their own. Um, But something that shows alumni buy in, stakeholder buy in shows a record of committed kind of donor support. And it doesn't need to be major big dollar donors. It just needs to be kind of uh, committed, uh, consistent donor uh, giving to the school. Um, Those are things that are all really, really important in kind of showing a program as being valuable because from an administrator administrator standpoint, from an administrator standpoint, If they're just looking at nuts and bolts and they're looking at numbers and they're not, and they're disaggregating that from the actual humans that are behind the numbers, which has been my argument entirely is I don't really care about any of these numbers or any of these concerns that you guys have. These are real opportunities that benefit students that are just in terms of. Demographics are different in terms of their race and also in terms of social economics. And sometimes those are the same, and sometimes they're they're different. I mean, you know, you cannot be from rural wherever and get onto a lacrosse team in general. You know, I mean, you cannot be from you know a low-income inner-city environment and and earn a spot on a crew team in general. You know, there's always you know uh you know select individuals or people who get into this one program that might be in some place right. but in general those things don't occur but we all know in track and field you can be from a school that only has one coach and you're the only good athlete and you throw a shot put out the ring you know what i mean and it goes it uploads to mouth split or uploads to uh, direct athletics or what have you right. and the coach says oh my gosh have you seen this kid They're recruited, you know, and now that kid may be the first in their family to ever go to college. Like that sort of thing is not that unique in track and field, whereas that is unique for a lot of these other sports where you have to go to sports camps and you have to um, go to combines. You have to make highlight reels. And it depends what league you're in. Are you in the travel league and Mm -hmm. all these other things that create financial and structural barriers to entry Mm -hmm. and make the real cost of each recruitment slot? prohibitively expensive track and field cost for each recruitment slot it's just materially different mm-hmm. and so you know to me it's like yeah all the numbers and all of the town all that stuff can be figured out if you actually were actually concerned about the impact these decisions have a lot of times administrators don't do that <laughs> they just look at the numbers and if you're just looking at the numbers track and field would be an easy target because you can cut it for a ton of reasons. You, you save, you save about a million bucks. Um, you, um, <clears throat> you, uh, don't have to worry about pushback from like mm-hmm. an alumni, uh, kind of infrastructure, uh, or from the trustees, because there's not really a presence there in general. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, there's no like cultural value or, or something that you can lean on in terms of uh, what you're getting back, you know, the kind of the intangibles. And then also the tangible, there's not a kind of donor infrastructure um, around that sport either. So it's not like you're going to be losing donors that are important to the coffers of an athletic department. And so on all those issues, it's just an easy target if you have um, Title IX or financial concerns, There's a lot of universities do have financial concerns. Well, I think they're misappropriating their resources, but they do have um, financial concerns, but then also in terms of Title IX, since female enrollment is outpacing male enrollment um, um, at a lot of institutions, and in order to stay within proportionality, it means that university uh, athletic departments are going to start to have to make some decisions with regard to Title IX if they're going to add more women's opportunities, or if they're going to reduce male opportunities. And and so I do see this issue um, continuing to be a factor. I think track and field can make itself resilient if they really do lean on the fact that it is a unique opportunity provider in a way that other sports do not provide opportunity.
1: I like how you took that you know, that proverbial onion, that one layer down from the, the stats, the numbers, there's X many of countable slots, etc. And you brought it back down to Tommy and Laron and, uh, you know, Chatrice and Susan. Like, these are real people coming from really diverse backgrounds. Uh, I, I love that aspect. I, I talk about that a lot with coaching of, like, it's not your sprinter and your hurdler. Well, it's, it's Tommy and Tina. Like, they... Those are real people who have real issues, by the way, they're off the track, etc. So talk about this. Uh, there's our first like proactive thing. If you don't have an alumni, an active alumni, I'm going to call it an association. And, and we're not talking about the general school or even the general athletic department. You're talking about track and field specifically. Um, and you're right, this seems like I know somebody out there right now is listening is like, yeah, that's great, Mike and Russell. But you know fit that in between academic worries with my kids and travel schedule and coaching and recruiting where does this go but we're talking about the lifeblood potentially of your program so um so you're talking about reaching out to alumni um, and creating really a, a, a culture, right, of, of alumni from many, many years and decades coming together to help support and, and give that, I'm using that, that C word, that culture of that track is important. It's not just something we did at the university and now we're lawyers and doctors and uh, moms and dads and things like that. Like we, we continue to support the program. Some will do it financially in many, many dollars, some will do it financially in small dollars, and some will do it just in support, maybe coming back to help with a track meet or to creating the newsletter or things like that. Well, what other things should the uh, uh, should a, a proactive, healthy alumni organization do? And do you know of anybody who's doing that part really well? Like, could maybe model this for other people?
2: Yes, yeah, so that's a great question. So, one of the uh, projects that we we at the Attractsmith Foundation want to launch within the next year is uh, a toolkit essentially of how you can build your own alumni infrastructure yourself and uh i will say princeton uh the friends of princeton track is very well organized and very well structured and you know, funds a decent amount of the program actually um uh so i mean the university funds um you know a solid amount um obviously i don't know what the breakdown is so i'm not going to say percentage you know i'm just going to say a decent amount of funding comes from the friends of princeton track um, which is which is, you know, which is amazing. Um, in terms of what people can do now in the meanwhile, um, because the, the, the toolkit that we're gonna develop, it won't be ready to be published, uh, you know, in the immediate term. Um, and so, you know, there may be some coaches who are listening, oh, this sounds great. You know, I wanna do something now. I don't think the lift needs to be as heavy for coaches as they may be thinking. um i think it it could be as simple as okay i'm going to schedule a zoom meeting um and invite you know a bunch of different alumni um on the call alumni and parents um and have it be just uh, an hour and say have open dialogue and say hey we need to have this for x y and z um you know let's just have an open discussion but you know this is really uh Something that you all will have to, you know, organize. Um, and once you get a group of people together and they start talking, natural kind of organization starts to come about. I've kind of noticed. Mm-hmm. And there's always someone uh, in an alumni uh, within the alumni uh, of a of any sort of organization that has experience. Uh, organizing folks or developing folks Mm -hmm. so what i would say for coaches i have the meeting just to kind of have just a broad-based conversation but with the goal of trying to identify uh, a few people who would be on a kind of leadership initial leadership committee Mm -hmm. um, and then say okay you know this leadership committee will figure out the structure you know um, Mm -hmm. uh, of the organization um, you know figure out how you guys want to do officers in the third, but you know for uh, for the short term don't worry about getting too bogged down in kind of organizational details mm-hmm. um in the short term this organizing committee what their mission is going to be is to have a a some sort of large gathering at some point a year that's advantageous so you know, maybe the university does something really big right before graduation, like Princeton does something really big before graduation every year. Okay, maybe that could be a um, a, a, a big alumni student picnic, or maybe your school has a really important home meet that happens in late April every year. Okay, um, let's just do a, uh, let's do a picnic. I'm thinking it doesn't need to be um, that, it doesn't need to be as much of a heavy lift as people may think. Um, just create something that gives an excuse for people to come together, um, have some food there because people like to eat, you know, like br- bring, um, bring folks together, um, have a way to connect the alumni with the students. Um, you know, so maybe it is a track meet. And then after the track meet, the entire team comes in, you know, it's basically just like a picnic with, with all the alumni. Um, and then have, you know, at that alumni, the goal to be, to have all the alumni uh, uh, donate, you know, to, to the athletic department. Um, And then, you know, from there, you know, have discussions about, okay, how can we make this into a more formalized entity? Mm -hmm. And so all that planning and stuff that really can be alumni that, that do that. I think what the coaches, all the coaches really need to do um, is kind of create that meeting and tell them, Hey, I need a, group of people to volunteer to be organizing, you know, kind of committee. And two, I need y'all to figure out a, basically a picnic or a, or some sort of gathering that makes sense um, for alumni and parents um, and current athletes to come together. Um, And, you know, I think coinciding it with the track meet just makes sense. And so if, You know that makes sense for that local institution um you know i think that's probably a good way of starting something Mm -hmm. and you know just being really clear like yeah you know the the organization won't be 100 percent right now um Mm -hmm. you know once the alumni come together you know the alumni themselves uh you know should talk about how they can more formally structure themselves um but just get that first thing going Mm -hmm. um i think is important and so For coaches, you know, just creating the impetus for, you know, that kind of event, um, I think would be really helpful. And I think coaches would be surprised with how engaged um, some of the alumni would be about creating something like that. Um, And yeah.
1: I I like that get it started because you're right. My mind goes into oh man, I'm going to have to do this, 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 and this. Just start with number one. Start with working with your um, admissions office and getting uh, past emails of past alums. Uh, Maybe you have a terrible alumni association. They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can give you like 10 emails I I have last year and that's it, we just started doing this. Okay, start with those 10 and hey, you 10, you were all on a team, who do you stay in contact with through Facebook and et cetera, and and build out that database and start with just a a newsletter, a a monthly, quarterly, if you think monthly is too much, do it quarterly, just an update on how the team's doing, stars you got from this part of the country and this part of the country, et cetera, Uh, just get it started until it, you're right kind of you know when people get together organizations happen right S- sometimes good and bad <laughs> with that but um but the, the organization can start happening because I, I think you're right leaders start bubbling to the top and so someone's going to have a passion of like man i really enjoyed my time at XYZ University, I want to help these kids who are on the team today. And by the way, the you know five years, these future kids that are gonna be part of that university, that's great. So number one proactive thing is if you don't have a, an active, engaged alumni track association, uh, start it, get it started small Kinlin builds a big fire. So, so get it started. What, what other things can we uh, help bring value to coaches and uh, start working on being proactive in really, really, you know, I, I kind of started this as like, how do you not save your program, but like how do you keep your, you know, bulletproof your program, but more this is really just how you grow your program is what it's starting to sound like. How do you just have a, a healthy, vibrant track program?
2: Yeah. So another thing that I think coaches can do um, now, this isn't, this isn't external, this is more internal, more kind of a, you know, in the family kind of conversation instead of kind of a, you know, a external conversation because externally, I was really big on, we always need to show a united front. You know what I mean? Like the tracking of the community needs to show a united front against uh, these uh, forces that are trying to take these programs away in college. Um, but, you know, there are some things that we do need to talk about inside of track and field and some of the factions that exist but I really didn't want that to be something that you know I kind of communicated outwardly because it's like we cannot show any weakness mm-hmm. <laughs> at all mm-hmm. um, but one thing that I have noticed um, and I don't necessarily have the answer to it unfortunately but I have noticed uh, that there are a lot of I don't want to say a lot so it was None of the schools that I worked with, but I was at a track meet this spring um, with a friend and he was running, um, it was a grad student who ran at another university and we were going to a track meet and he was going to race there and we saw someone who was on his team, it looked like a sprinter, walk by and I was like, oh, that's your teammate. Um, And my friend looked at me and was like, oh yeah, I don't know him. I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Yeah, we don't, we never see um, the the sprinters or the, the throwers." He said, "He doesn't even see the other distance athletes because he, the 5K, 10K athlete, who's at a pretty high level, so he only trains with one other person, so he doesn't even know the other guys on the team really." And we, that was just such a weird thing to me, particularly being at um, a school that was uh, really dominant um, at the uh, conference level and that had a really kind of well-rounded team the entire time. Um, it was very strange to me to be at a place where <laughs> um, that didn't mm-hmm. exist. And some of my friends, so I believe you can't uh, do fifth years um, there. Um, you can't compete as a grad student. So If a student um, has extra eligibility, they usually do their fifth year at a different place. So they've done it at you know all the you know in the big top schools. Um, A lot of times, you know, when I would ask them about their experience, oh yeah, you know, it was great for this reason. We went to all the big meets and the stat and the third. But you know, they talked about the team culture not being the same, you know, and they're not being a locker room culture. I mean, you know, our locker room, you know. At Princeton, we all used the locker room. We all showered together after the meet, after the meets, after practice. Um, yeah, they, a lot of them talked about. Yeah, we would just, you know, train and then get everyone would get in their car and then drive home. You know, mm-hmm. um, so that part of it, yeah, you know, every school doesn't have like, you know, a, a robust locker room setup. So like, I know that's not necessarily something that could change. But in terms of kids knowing each other on the team, that is something that very much so is is within the control. Mm -hmm. of, of the coaches. Um, and so I think it is inexcusable that you had an athlete who said he just, he did not know, not like, Oh yeah, I don't really talk to him that much. Like he said, he did not know that kid, (laughs) you know, that kid was a stranger. He just happened to be on the track team with him. Mm -hmm. Like that is a problem. Yeah, and I, so I have
1: a lot of empathy for head coaches, specifically head coach, right? Cause yeah. it falls on the head coach, you know, a lot of things because it is such a, diver, a diverse sport and the yeah. locations just of training are usually, you know, the sprinters are going to gonna train at one point in the day and be in this corner of the track, the throwers sometimes are halfway across campus and they're going to train. Uh, but, but you're right. It is inexcusable because there are other ways to do it. Right. First of all, maybe there's a way you do it in the bus rides and those kind of things, but you know, uh, have a luncheon at your house or have a, a event at the bowling alley or whatever, but it, it takes that intentionality is what it takes. And again, I know there's head coaches screaming at us right now, Russell, that are like, yeah, okay. On top of, right. and, and, I'm, and I'm one of the biggest people to say, Hey man, I, you know, not that coaching's an eight to five type of job, but I think more of us need to, to, to think of it that way. Meaning we put our personal relationships, our, our spouses and our own children, uh, at bay sometimes to a detriment so I'm, I'm one of those who are like yeah you, you gotta think 20 track 24 7 and think of your uh your track kids 24 7 because you, you have other parts of your lives however there is intentionality within your team structure as well that that should be focused on
2: i mean it could be something as simple as okay um and i, I know people are going to say yeah you know this isn't possible in our situation center sure. third but in the fall the only part of the team that is can uh, that you know, that's competing, you know, are the, are the cross country athletes. It could be something as simple as, okay, we'll have a weekly, just like, you know, meeting or something before practice. And yeah, everyone has practice at different hours, different times, but every Thursday or something like Mm -hmm. that, we'll just meet for 30 minutes just to, you know, go over, you know, whatever, just, Mm -hmm. just to kind of have an opportunity for Mm -hmm. the athletes to know each other. Um, and, and to be around each other, um, at least to be able to recognize each other's faces. I mean, because this kid did not even recognize this other kid, you know, um, which is a problem. The other thing that I think now, this is a, this is more of a structural issue. Um, and there are going to be coaches that disagree, um, strongly, and that's fine. Uh, we're able to have diverse opinions here, but I do think it's an issue that our sport, particularly indoors, has uh the the incentive is to chase times or marks or competition and so you know for schools that have the budget they're able to send you know you know you look at their website of uh you know uh, who's competing this weekend it's like yeah they're competing at four different meets because you have some kids up in uh Washington and a few kids in Arkansas and then one kid yeah one kids at Texas and then another group of folks at the armory. It's like, wait, what? Like right. that's, you know, that, and, and I get it. I mean, every school, every school that has the budget does that. I mean, schools that don't have the budget, they can't do that. Right. But, you know, I, I just don't, I don't think that helps to build a sense of team, but I also understand, you know, with the top 16 system um, for indoors, versus just a list, you have to chase the competition. So how do you fix that? I do think the regional system, and I know there's some people who don't necessarily love the regional system, but I do think the regional system kind of, (laughs) 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 I think, I think it kind of addresses that concern a little bit. Um, since it's top 48 in the region, you don't get quite as much, um, uh, having to go to this one race at this one track, because you know that, you know, the competition and the track dynamics are such that you're going to get the time that you need, um, you know there's a little bit more okay, just make sure that you're within the top 48, and then you know you go to regionals and then you just race your way into nationals. Um, so yeah, again, there's no perfect solution to that, right. but yeah, I, I do I, think But
1: I, I will say I, I agree with you, I'm not a big fan of the. Multi meets, you know, on the same weekend. I think that's why I have such a huge uh, love for the conference meet because no mm-hmm. one doesn't. Everybody's putting everybody out there on conference. No one's uh, saying, yeah, "Yeah, well, you go to Stanford, run the ten k while we do SECs over here or whatnot." You know, so I, that's why I love conference because, and then it's everybody pulling on the same rope as well. You know, I, you know, I was at Mississippi State. We were not very good in the conference. Um, we were, you know, we'd be down on the bottom but even the difference between going from 11th to 10th in the conference was a big deal for our team like we were trying to like the kids got into like okay on the four by four if we place third instead of fourth we'll get we'll be ahead of old miss that's really where we were always we're trying to get us just to but but even you know 10th and 11th and 9th, that that was a battle, not just the top one, two, and three, which we wish we could have been there, but that's why I love conference meet, man. There's no, it's it's everybody on that chest running for that school, man. I love it. Mm -hmm. You know, the last couple of things you've talked about here, Russell, really come down to one word, and that's relationships. You're talking Mm -hmm. about alumni and the relationships and having an organization there, team camaraderie, that's relationships, Uh, how you structure your schedule, whether you take three kids that go to the Stanford 10K and things like that, that that can hurt relationships uh, as well. One of the things that I wanted to talk to you about proactivity is that word relationships. What do you think about the, you you kind of touched on this a little bit earlier, but what about the relationships of the coaching staff and maybe certain leaders on your team as well with administrators in the athletics, administrators within the school, and even, you know, depending on the, I don't say the the level but the ability I guess of relationships with board of trustees how, how important is I'll, I'll stick with the head coach is that head coach how important is it for him or her to have to to have a relationship with the ad and have a relationship with the president and maybe members of the board is that part of helping give your program some cachet to not be on the chopping block or is that just good to
2: have um, that's a really good question I mean I feel like my opinion is pretty biased because I've only engaged with ADs who have decided to cut their teams. And so I, I have a pretty uh, tainted view of athletic administrators in that regard, but I know that that is not fair (laughs) because, um, but it's just kind of how my experience. um, And again, I don't think that I don't think that many of them well i think one but i think i don't think many of them were filled with malicious intent um but the impact of the decision still had a bad outcome and th- to be quite frank i don't necessarily care if they're nice people or whatever um the fact that you know they made a decision that's going to serve to the detriment of you know little clarissa little bobby um jalil um sandra whomever um and the fact that these are life changing opportunities. I mean, right. those kids who are playing baseball across, they're going to go to college anyway. You know, like straight up, they're going to go to college um, for the most part. I mean, if you look at the the if you look at the the, um, if you look at the, uh, um, the the cost per sport. I mean, mm-hmm. across like on average, is about what almost two thousand dollars to mm-hmm. compete, and that's you know the average. That's not even like recruitable slots. Track and field is the cheapest sport in high school, um, based off the Aspen Institute. Less than two hundred dollars. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so, yeah, I, I get what you're saying there. I, I, yeah, I know those stats. A lot of that comes from uh, NSGA puts out a lot of those stats of the cost right, right, of, right. Not, not the cost of attendance, but the cost of participation. And, and you're right, 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 check right. as always. Um, it, it, probably the bottom i mean because you, you, when you talk it's the cheapest sport these, yeah when you think about these other sports swimming and diving etc i mean first of all access to those facilities is you think it's hard to get on a track try to find a a, a swimming pool that allows you to dive and things like that without being in mm-hmm. an expensive private uh club etc so yeah i'm with you on that i give it a shot yeah yeah so you're not watching us what he saw me was kind of giving my like i'm not sure i agree with that but i i'm i'm with you on this okay
2: yeah yeah, yeah. so um yeah no so i mean it's just uh and of course i mean like you know there's there's always uh <laughs> uh anecdotes or 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 people who defy the rules but in general sure, sure. uh folks who participate in some of these more affluent sports tend to be from higher socioeconomic mm-hmm. class and we just know that uh the higher you go on the socioeconomic um ladder in the US this is borrowing from a sociology background <laughs> the the more it's more likely that you're going to have the grades and the standardized test scores um, to go to school and it's more likely that you will go to college i mean so the likelihood the probability that you go to college just goes up uh the the higher you go up the socioeconomic ladder and it's just like it's 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 positively correlated you know along all those different metrics and so yeah so to me, you know, like these ADs, you know, need to be aware of the decisions that they're making. But to answer your question, um, I don't think it hurts. And I actually think it's probably helpful to build relationships with these ADs um, and administrators um, if, if the coaches don't have, you know, them already. Um, you know, and I know there's like a million things on all these coaches' plates, but you know, it may not be a bad idea to, you know, even at the beginning of each school year, just try to get, you know, try to get a lunch or, 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 or a meeting, um, you know, with the AD, just to, you know, uh, speak with them, you know, just to uh, let them know, um, you know, about the, the program, how you know excited you are about the upcoming year, the incoming recruits that you have, you know, you can, um, you know, invite them to one of the competitions that you think will be will be great. Just something like that you know whether they come or not um but i think you know these personal relationships um, um it certainly can't hurt i mean if the ad has a really positive personal relationship with you as a person that may that may make them think twice mm-hmm. before making a decision um it shouldn't hinge on personal relationships but right. we're all human you know right. and, and personal okay. relationships um do impact our you know uh, how we make decisions um it, it
1: may not help but I have to believe it will hurt if you have, if you're just a, a name, if you're just another name of a stat sheet that you're the head coach, Joe Smith, and you, you stay your life over in your office and on the track and make no effort to have a relationship. I have to believe boy, it's, it's easier to cut that person's program than someone you, like you said, even if it's once a year checking in. And we, you know, we have this many people on the roster. We're excited. You know, hey, we got a home meet. Come to this. Even if they don't get, you get kind of credit for it for the invite, even if they don't show up, right? So, um, yeah, it may not help, but boy, I have to believe it. It would hurt if you don't have a relationship uh, where it's possible a- and where it makes sense. I mean, you, you said it right. We're humans, right? You're not going to have relationship, positive relationship with everybody. Maybe some people you just don't jive with. That's okay. There's a lot of administrators that have influence on these decisions, so making yourself, uh, being the personable person that you are, will I think will, should help.
2: Yeah. And also, I mean, if you got to play the game, play the game, right? So like, we've all have had to grin and bear it at different times. And then, you know, uh, whether it be a, maybe I'm speaking for personal experience, but (laughs) whether it be a coworker that you don't necessarily jive with or, or a boss that you don't necessarily drive with, you've, you know, still have to kind of go in and, you know, work with them and be pleasant and things of that nature. So, you know, my hope is that, you know, all the coaches that are listening are able to have genuine, you know, authentic, um, real relationships with their ADs. But if they don't, um, I still think they should go in and make themselves available, you know, make the AD feel nice, you know, <laughs> um, you know, talk about how you know, excited you are about the upcoming year, you know, if you are having at the beginning of the school year, um, you know, how, um, you know, how the track and field program, you know, um, represents your institution um, well, and, and you know, and how, um, you know, you are, you know, just glad to be a part of the robust, you know, sports offerings of the institution, you know, just things that an AD would probably like to hear. Um, so. I think, you know, even if you're like, oh, my AD is dry as dirt, you know, just go in there and just, you know, and have a boring hour conversation. You know what I mean? I think, <laughs> um, hey, yeah, we, we've I guess. all
1: done it for recruits. Not every 18-year-old is the most exciting kid in the world. <laughs> We're like, okay, look, you better be glad you run fast, my man. Uh, come on.
2: <laughs> I actually think I was, so I probably was the opposite. So this is actually ridiculous. So. For every school, so I had a notebook uh, and for each of my recruitment, well, I had a notebook where I wrote down notes for each of my recruitment visits, and I had categories oh my. Um, of stuff, and it was like coach, like team, location, um, weather, but one of the biggest categories was food and I, so i would like open up the notebook like in like the office with the coaches and asking them about the food and then writing down notes and then um, you, know, so, you know, it had the whole grid, you know, so, I mean, they, and they would see that I had other schools listed there, you know, so I, was, I, I wasn't.
1: I take it you were looking at all Ivy League and Ivy League type schools with, with that type of uh, meticulousness. <laughs> <laughs> you, you'd have been at Troy University and be like, look, man, what are we doing here? Your
2: food's no good. <laughs> I, to be honest, food was a big category because I was like, yeah. look, I knew what well, I didn't know how to cook then at all. I mean, I just recently kind of become more comfortable with cooking, but yeah, I was like, I'm not going to be cooking anything. So I need the food to be amazing. Like there's not, that's not, that's a non-negotiable, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so that was a big, like, yeah, I'm like, you know, like they need to have a strong Andrew meter program. because does 800 meter runner in college. Um, you'd have a strong four x four program because I wanted to also run on the four x four. They needed to run at Penn Relays cause I'm from Philly. And I'm like, I want to be able to go to Philly every, every spring. Um, there were some other things but then food i'm like that is a big part of my life and i need that to be on point so i can so, assume
1: princeton has a great dining hall with food and
2: food uh, princeton's food was actually number two
1: oh well yeah okay spill the beans who was number one
2: cornell oh, i mean their food was right. great yeah, yeah their food was really really good nice and all really the way well
1: down to fred samara got you to come to Princeton. fred samara <laughs>
2: freddie sams yeah and no, uh um, yeah, I kind of hate. I mean, cuz Cornell was our rivals for mm. for for the Ivy League. Um I had, you know, I I actually was really cool with the Cornell folks, but I was like Ithaca it snows all the time. It's cold as crap. I'm like, but this food is great. But I'm like, is that enough? Is that enough? I strongly considered it. I'm not even going to lie. Um but um but yeah, no, that was that was a major category.
1: Oh, <laughs> all right, let's let's get back on track pun intended um wh- what about some other ideas that i had that i thought about in this may it may be too granular actually but what about budgets and rosters and what i mean by that is you, you know you get a set budget and sometimes that's negotiated right on a yearly basis from the head coach to the administrator uh, but is it important to come under budget is it important to show how you're using that budget effectively for the kids uh, and, and then kind of be follow up on that question on the roster side uh, um, should we be intentional when we're talking about title nine and diversity should we be more intentional on recruiting minorities onto our teams uh, should and then also on top of that with the title nine should we be more intentional and some schools have this like as a well, I guess as a rule I don't know if they can officially make it a rule I don't know um, but you can only have 40 men's rosters and you have to have 80 women's rosters. Is that too granular or, or, or what for this conversation?
2: No, I mean, I, I, think, I think it's fine. So I do want to preference this by saying, you know, I'm not a college coach, and never have been a sure. paid college coach. Uh, I've been an assistant, volunteer assistant before, but you know, you're not, you know, privy to these kind of, yeah. uh, you know, uh, kind of decision-making Um things. So mm-hmm. um, I do want to just preference that before I get into any of my thoughts, sure. you know, just so people are like, oh, that's not exactly how it happens. Like, that's yeah, fair. well, that's you fair. know, I'm just kind of making making, a, making educated guesses here. Mm-hmm. Um, with regard to budgetary issues, being under budget, that's interesting. I, I mean, the schools that got cut, I mean, they were not wild with their budget at all, <laughs> they were actually very. Um, they were spending, you know, an uh, appropriate amount. Just that, you know, the aggregate costs of paying for shoes and buses and hotels and all that—it just it's going to incur a large cost at the end of the year. Now, if there is well, a well, hold on, what, what I the,
1: more mean is, and I don't know if you saw this stat. This this actually kind of blew my mind as well. Uh, I saw a—I'm a, gonna call it a stat, a study. I don't know, and it was—you know it was men's and women's basketball. So I know those are two separate programs, and in track, we're typically the same program. The head coach is going to be head coach over men and women, uh, but it looked at the um, the food cost, the meals cost that they spent on the athletes. And I would have thought, oh, they're probably similar. Maybe okay, maybe guys eat more. I don't know. I'm doing air quotes there, but uh, but maybe they'd spend a little bit more. But within the same school, and, and these were. Name schools here. These are the top of the women's and men's college basketball programs here. The amount of food spent for the men's basketball team was, I mean, disproportionately. I mean, it was out of this world more than what was spent on the women's. It, it was almost like, uh, th- they didn't put this in the thing that I saw, but it was like, oh, the men eat lobster and the women must eat ramen. Like, that's how big the spread of the difference was. So when I talk about budget, because I'm, I'm big on uh, – coaches you know knowing your worth and, and asking for more you you know we, we don't spend enough to, to our point of that it's one of the cheaper per capita per person uh sports we, we need to ask for more but we keep fighting for your program you deserve it um more on, on that discretionary spending you know do i fly to the meat that's three hours away instead of the buses. Do I um, do we eat filet mignon for the team instead of regular college food or what? You would know more about that, Russell, because that was a big you know thing for you on that food side. But that, that's more of what I mean on the on the the budget side of it, I guess.
2: Yeah, no. So that's uh that's interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, I think coaches can make those kind of decisions if if they feel like it makes sense. Um you know, charter a bus to this meet that's a four-hour, five-hour drive instead of going to the airport um, because it will be cheaper. Also, probably, honestly, we'll probably be about the same amount of time, too, because we have to go through security, all that stuff. Um, But um, so, yeah, I think any sort of cost-saving measures in that regard may be a good thing to look at. But like I said, looking at the financial data um, that was available uh, for the programs that we, that I, that I worked with, it didn't look like there was an extreme amount of kind of spending on those kind of, kind of ancillary things. It seemed like uh, most of the spending was on just equipment and, you know, travel. And I think part of travel is, you know, yeah, there's transportation to get there, but there's also like where you're staying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and you know, you can't have the kids sleeping in the tents, you know, like you have to, uh, you know, if you're bringing a team, you know, um, anywhere, you know, hotels, you know, I mean, everyone knows how much those are, those costs, even yeah. if you do, um, you know, uh, no group rates or whatever, it's still pretty expensive. So yeah, like my sense was that the coaches were not being, um irresponsible with their budgets um based off of what i saw and so i am cautious to say that track and field coaches need to think about being even more cautious with their budgets because yeah, good. i have not seen again this is anecdotal mm-hmm. but i haven't seen too many track coaches being irresponsible with their budgets because i feel like a lot of track coaches kind of sense you know that their position at a university is such that they cannot you know rock the boat you know right in, in that way or I mean the basketball team they can spend crazy amounts of money and you know no one's going to like bat an eye football team you know you know um mm-hmm. have fun but I think you know in the uh in the Olympic sports and particularly track and field the sense that I got was that you yeah, and field coaches were very aware that they needed to be um be intentional about what they're what they're spending and what they're not spending. So um yeah, I mean if it if if a coach feels like they can make decisions where they can make some cost cutting um uh, practices, sure. Um, but again, I keep going back to thinking about, you know, uh, baseball at University of Minnesota and University right. of right. I mean, these other sports spend so much more money than track and field. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, and and they are deemed to be okay. So I don't know. It just, to me, I don't necessarily know if that is necessarily the issue. But, you know, if a coach at a particular university does feel as though they can um, spend in a way that might make more sense, then, you know, sure. You know, I, I, I then, then I and I support that. And then your question about roster management your roster issues. Management,
1: exactly. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I, I don't think too many universities will have a problem with you adding a bunch of athletes to your cross-country roster. And I know that that is padding um, your kind of, uh, you, you know, your roster, you know, in a way that isn't great. But um You know, I mean, a lot of universities, well, I don't know of a lot, but some schools, they have like little running clubs or whatever. And, you know, the student running club may ask, you know, to use, you know, the track after you're done. If you're a distance coach, you know, just stick around and watch some of them run. And then the top two or three girls like, hey, you want to come join the actual track team? (laughs) Just pull them in. And you, you only need to race them, I think, they need to compete like once each season or something like that for them to count. So um, I know that that feels really kind of.
1: Yeah. And I'm not talking about padding in that way. I'm not talking about lowering standards. I'm talking about more of being intentional on the, possibly being more intentional on the diversity that you bring to your team. Mm. And because of the title nine, the ratio of women athletes to men athletes that you carry, on the roster. I mean, certainly, uh, I, 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 you know, I'm a betting man, so I'd put a big bet on this one that on everybody's campus, and I'm talking about all the way to the whoever's going to win Division One indoors this year, that there are kids, a kid or kids on that team, that's like, mm, yeah, you don't really meet the standard, but you're there for one reason or the other. Maybe you're just a hard worker and, y- you know, you do great. You're a local kid or something. I don't know. Uh, I'm not saying it's wrong. It's, it's great that that kid gets that experience, um, but being intentional on okay, I'm going to make sure that I have two-to-one ratio or two-and-a-half-one ratio, et cetera, of women to men on the on the roster. I'm going to be more um, – uh, what's the word I'm looking for here? More, I guess, intentional on what men I allow on the team that, hey, I'm sorry, I'm just, Johnny, this is not the right spot, f- place for you because I'm, I'm capped at 40. But, hey, Susie, you know, you got some potential here, so I'm going to have you on, on the women's team would would in really this this whole conversation is around how do we proactively help and strengthen our programs? Does that have a play in that topic?
2: Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's a I think it's situational. so hmm. so with regard to race, um I do think having a diverse team is a net benefit um in terms of uh, racial demographics. I mean, all the schools that I helped save, they all leaned on a racial kind of argument to a to a greater or less degree. Um, and if we didn't have the racial diversity um, on any of these teams, um, it would have been much harder, or if again possible, to get get the teams um, reinstated. Um, and so, I mean, I think it is a net benefit. You know, if you have if you carry um, a more racially diverse team. I mean, the social economic diversity is also really important to me. The issue is that that is less salient. Um, it's, you don't see it. And it's harder to argue. It's harder to make a kind of political, like uh, point around that. Um,
1: because you can't see it. You don't immediately look at hundred kids and go, yep, you guys came from, you know, poor backgrounds. You guys came from affluent backgrounds, et cetera.
2: Right. And also you don't necessarily always know, um, you know, the the coaches may not even fully know, um, all the time, you know, I mean, they should, you know, if they're, if, 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 you know, they were, um, but yeah, I mean, it it may not be a hundred percent clear, um, you know, what the, you know, what everyone's financial background is. Um, so, you know, and if, you know, the coach who recruited that athlete may know, but, you know, some of the other event coaches may not know, and, you know, the set and the third. So, um, I just think it's it's a lot harder. So, I always bring up social economic diversity because that's also really important to me. Mm-hmm. But it's not the kind of <laughs> it's not going to, you know, uh, basically what we did was embarrass these universities into changing. It's not going to embarrass these universities into changing right, right. um, in the way that you know you're denying black kids from opportunity. You know, mm-hmm. but. Um, really all these kids get these opportunities and i care about all these kids getting opportunities but in terms of how you can communicate an argument um you know there's there's a way that's more effective and a way that isn't so i mean the most effective arguments have been you know denying black students of opportunities also denying female athletes opportunities because um you know as we know many of these programs are combined you know we take away the men's program. The, the women's athletes lose coaches, um, they lose training partners um, and, you know, it's, it, it becomes uh, harder. I mean, a lot of the coaches said it, it was hard um, for them to in- stay engaged with their female recruits that they were recruiting. After the men's team was announced that it was going to get cut because, you know, a lot of the top female recruits, you know, just didn't want to go to that institution after they realized that was going to be a women's only program. Obviously, there are women's only programs that exist and and are competitive in their own right, Uh, but when I look at the NCAA and the top, you know, programs, you know, in the country, you know, they're all you know programs that have both the men's and the women's side. I think the women do benefit.
1: Yeah, you you took a deep dive in this. What, what was the podcast you were on with the good lawyer? And I believe it was hosted by a, f- a female, and she was a doctor.
2: Yes, I believe? yeah, yeah. She works at a uh, University of Penn. Yes,
1: yeah. yeah. Tell us about that because I want you to go Google that podcast specifically, because really, Russell and uh, uh, I keep calling him the good lawyer. Um, (laughs) Arthur Bryant. Yeah, Yeah. thank you. I'm terrible. Sorry, Mr. Arthur. It's Um, okay. (laughs) that you you guys took a real deep dive into that aspect of schools that had both men and women, as well as how Clemson got itself in trouble. Title nine by cutting the men's program, which flies in the face of what we would just, you know, us non-ivy league uh educated people wrestle would think is, is right but you guys uh, so what, what was that podcast because i'd really want people to go listen to that one that was a really fascinating yeah
2: i'm actually um i have done something i'm actually looking it up right now um so i will give you that podcast name in a second um and
1: as, and as he's looking that up what we'll do is uh, I'll, I'll look it up at post uh interview here and i'll put it in the show notes as well because it was a really that was a really good one I, I that was one of my my favorite episodes there i really liked it
2: Yes, so the podcast was called.
1: I'm trying to give you time, man. I was trying to. Yeah, I know, know. I know, I know, I know. know.
2: So um... he's
1: been on so many people. It takes him a while to get his his, his little uh, podcast rolodex. There.
2: No, seriously. So Karen Weaver, a professor at University of Penn, yes, and the podcast. I think Point if you Google
1: Dr. Down. Karen Weaver, Russell Dinkins, I think that'll do it. Yeah, Google's awesome. I don't know if you know that, Russell, but you know,
0: no. Google,
2: <laughs> Google, you've got to have a lot of information. It'll give it to you. I was you. looking through my email, actually. She, um, was, she
1: was she was a really good host. Like I took notes of like, man, I need to do a little bit better job. She was really good, obviously well-educated. I don't think I realized she was at UPenn, so that tells me that. But, um, <laughs> but, but go if, you, if you're listening to this podcast, you're a podcast listener, go listen to that episode specifically. Lots of good yeah. almost like data dump you guys did there. It was really fascinating.
2: Yeah. So I'll bring I will I'll mention the um uh the specific name of the podcast as so soon. But uh what we chatted about there, um, which I think was really was really really awesome. Um talking about kind of how Clemson's situation was just interesting and a little bit different. Um so what? Before I mentioned that it's really kind of context specific, you know, that is situational. Clemson's uh, uh, was in perfect Title IX proportionality um, before they cut their track and field program. So before I just give just blanket advice, yeah, you know, try to carry X Y Z percent to the X Y Z. Coaches would just need to know what the what the Title IX kind of compliance is for their institution. And it isn't, it takes a little bit of work, but it's not super hard. It doesn't take an enormous amount of time. Um, What you do is you just look at the ratio of male to female enrolled undergraduates at your university. And then you look at the ratio um, of male to female student athlete opportunity slots, and so you can find that by just getting the um, the EADA data, so the um, education and athletics data. Um, most uh, college sports websites have that data somewhere on their website. Um, if it's not on your website, you can always go to the Department of Education, and if you type in EADA, um, you know, uh, college athletics into Google, you'll find the website and then you can pull up last year's data. Um, and then you just take, and it's 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 the duplicated count, not the unduplicated count. So you need to use a duplicated count, um, which is, which double or triple counts track and field on both the men's and women's side. You just see what the what the ratio is. And so if the ratio is, there's not a hard and fast number, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing in the law that says you need to be within this, th- this number. Right. Um, Interesting. But, and I don't want to give, Basically, if it is really close to 50-50, you're good. If it's not 50-50, you know, you can kind of just scratch on a piece of paper, okay, how many women's athletes will I need to add Mm. to the women's roster in order to kind of make sure that this is, um, you know, in, you know, in compliance? And so if you do need to, you know, add a few more female athletes, um, you know, uh, whether it be from campus or, you know, preferred walk-ons, you know. Mm um like you, know, you had two 400 meter hurdlers that were really good one you can offer scholarship to the other one you couldn't you can say okay you know you you, you were inviting you to the team as a preferred walk on whereas before you may have just said you know sorry this is an opportunity for you but now you realize oh having you know two or three more athletes you know particularly if they can you know you know you run the 800 would you run one or two cross country meets It's only 6k you know you can run in the back you know <laughs> um because you know that one athlete is going to count as three you know because they you know participated in that one or two cross-country meets so
1: you know, my mind goes to i love that so w- what i heard you say is the school's female to male ratio so let's you know I'm from alabama russell so let's use easy oh come here. on now let's you guys can <laughs> say it's 50 50 okay right and you you said earlier and i'd heard this as well that uh females are going to college at a higher rate than males Lately, I don't know what that's, if that's 10 years, 20 years, one year, I don't know, but that more females are entering in the college space than males. So we're going to say in this magical university, 50-50. Then you said, look at the number, and you used a a different word. You didn't say the number of athletes. You said the number of, like, athlete, say what you said there again. Athlete opportunities. Athlete opportunities. Now, does that mean... Is that just another way of saying the number of athletes that are on the on the squads that year, or because you said opportunities? Well, there it's unlimited in track. I could have a million people on my track team. but Is that is that what you're saying?
2: No. So what that means is that so it oftentimes only counts track and field. Uh, I mean, it only really applies to track and field, but it may also apply to. So if you have an athlete at a school that participates in soccer and baseball, for instance that athlete counts as two for for counting purposes because they have two opportunities. Like opportunity means um, participation um, for a discrete like sport or athletic season. Since track and field technically counts as three different sports, um, if someone participates in cross country, indoor and outdoor, they are participating in three sports got it okay and so where
1: where my mind was going then is if as you as the coach looks at this data if you're at a program that doesn't fully fund if you don't have the maximum number of of women's scholarships boy my mind automatically because as you use that those 400 hurdle examples like one you know you want a scholarship the other one you can't because you know you ran out of scholarship or whatever the standard's not there Boy, my mind went to like man what if you got one more scholarship and you broke that down into 10 percenters you can get 10 kids on the team now you know I snap my fingers like it. you just snap your fingers and 10 more kids would join your team but you know you, you got to work at it but that seems like 10 more kids that you're only spending 10 points on that means they're spending 90 points on coming to the school like that like t- you talk about like leveraging towards your administration of like hey give me another scholarship like there's a way in my mind that it's like how do you fight for your program and get more resources uh using that data but you got to know the data you got to go you got to go look this up
2: right 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 and you know it may be, you know, it may actually be a benefit, you know, to, you know, to, you know, to be able to, I don't, strategically, I don't know if this is a good idea or not, you know, just to be honest, but you know, it may or may not be a good idea. You know, if you do notice what the timeline numbers are and you, you know, of your own kind of volition, like, you know, add, you know, a few more females to the team, ask preferred walk-ons or you split a scholarship up or what have you, and then you say, yeah, you know, I, I did, you know, you go to the A.D. and say, hey, you know, I did this to ensure that, you know, our schools stay compliant because it's important uh, oh, for oh, this yeah. reason. You know, or that I reason. think
1: you I think you play dumb. Now, Russell, you would have yeah. a hard time with this. You're too smart to play dumb. But <laughs> us guys. Uh, yeah. You just like, hey, I don't know, Mr. And Mrs. A.D., would this help if, if we didn't? Yeah. Like, And then you actually know what the stats are. You're like, I know this would help. Don't you? lie? Actually, I
2: think I I. I I think you are 100% right with that. So <laughs> Remember, do not take make that it, last make advice. Their,
1: make it their idea. It's all, if, if it's their idea, don't worry about who gets credit, man. If it's the ad's idea, great, because it'll happen now instead of you just having this.
2: <laughs> yeah. So like, yeah, you know, add a few more women to the to the team, but is, is that is that a good thing? Is that a like good is, thing? is that bad? You know, that's Should actually done that, and they're like that no, is <laughs> that is perfect. Yeah. Sometimes I think. Um, sometimes I, you know. Uh, you don't. You don't want to give out, You don't want to give away too much information. Exactly. You know, and exactly. so um, yeah. Keep, keep the cards close. Uh, um, I actually got this podcast up now. Yeah, so yeah, what, it was called? called, the name was. It's very. I just heard it up. Jesus. Um. So it again, Doctor Karen Weaver and the the name of the podcast is trustees and presidents opportunities and challenges. Yes. Yeah. It's a long one. Yes. Right. Yeah. 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 yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I'm going to
1: have that in the show notes. Cause I really, uh, I enjoyed that one very, very much again, again, cause of like the, you almost gave that data dump of all that. Cause I found it interesting. The teams that had both men and women uh, progressively did better at nationals and the conference, things like that. I was like, I was like, That's genius, man. I just love that. Again, trying to find resources to help fight for your program to get, um, like in Mississippi state, we didn't have indoor track for men. So like, how, how do we, Bring back men's indoor, and Minnesota needs to bring it back, etc. And Central Michigan's fighting right now for their
2: program. So, um,
1: yeah, I love that. So of
2: data. another thing that I could so this is more, again, not a coach, haven't dealt with this, but I would like to think that, you know, if a, if you are a state institution and you are prioritizing, you know, trying to prioritize in-state, um, I do think that that could be a really positive thing uh for you uh, particularly with engaging with um trustees the president but also you know um the legislators because you know there's usually you know s- state funds um, in addition to federal funds that go to the state institutions and so um not to say that you're going to have to be hitting up these uh your state legislators or whatever but I do think from an optics standpoint it probably is helpful and then also from just a Managing, you know, costs or managing your scholarships. I mean, every state's different, but a lot of states do have one. You know, the in-state tuition is just lower. But then, two, um, you know, some states have different programs where if, you know, uh, you meet this certain academic category or what have you, you get a to you get a scholarship or you get a, a di- you know access to additional funds or what have you. And so an athlete who may be a blue chipper, um, you may only have to give them, you know, a partial scholarship because you know that you know the rest of their tuition is going to be paid for by this program that they're eligible for because of their academic profile and also because they're in state. Um, So, uh, and I'm, I'm sure many coaches are already doing this, I just want to encourage them to continue to think about that as just kind of a, a good way of having Great optics, particularly with your female athletes, um, making sure that um, you can say no. We are because part of the prong to Title IX is making sure that you are in proportionality, um, but also making sure that you are providing opportunities that are reflective of the local kind of kind of environment. Hmm. And so, in track and field is the largest female sport in high school, and it's probably the largest female sport in your state. And so <laughs> that is a um, you know a great argument to have you know if there's any issue because you know one of the issues that happened with cutting the men's track and field programs is that often like with uh actually a few of the schools when they cut the men's team they cut too many male opportunities so now they needed to amend the female roster and women's track and field was probably going to be the next target, either severely reducing the roster, Mm -hmm. or um, they weren't going to cut it completely, but it seemed like they were going to severely reduce it, maybe cross-country only for women or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, it was really, really important that we did not allow, you know, that to happen at all, because, I mean, that was just would have been tragic all the way around. And so, um, you know, making sure that you can communicate that you're not only bringing opportunity value in terms of Theme opportunity in terms of their gender, but also in terms of um, servicing, um, uh, providing a sport that is reflective of uh, the uh, of the local environment. I can't remember the exact um, language from the title from title nine. There's three prongs, and that's what I'm referring to as one of them. But um, you know, if, if You know, so if someone's listening to that, interested in that product, they can certainly look it up. Um, But, um, yeah, I think that could be a really, really positive thing to have in a feather in their cap.
1: Well, as we start to wrap up here, Russell, you stole my very last question. Actually, As we were talking about different things, I was like, hey, what about in-state versus (laughs) out-of-state? And then you just answered it. Very good. Thank you so much for that. Uh, But as we do wrap up, Russell, what is, you know, again, the whole goal today is to help coaches think about proactive ways to, um, I know it's kind of hard to say what the end goal here, because I I said, I don't want to say bulletproof, because I don't want to do fear mongering that you know, you're on the chopping block, etc. But really, it's, it's about strengthening your program and and, uh, making your program better, not only in regards to the performances and where you stack up in conference and nationals and things like that. But, um, you know, we talked a lot about the relationships, how do you build a culture, maybe that's what it's really all about, is the culture of your team as it relates to the rest of the university, and then inside the athletic department with administrators, etc. But as we wrap up today, Russell, what uh, Any kind of final, I don't know, you're the face of this thing, man. Uh, So you got a good-looking face. That's the good news, brother, man. You're good-looking here, man. What is uh, Uh, kind of – It's
2: moisturizer, I will say that. Put on my lotion. (laughs) I actually put on it right before (laughs) this. I'll show the people this is face moisturizer. uh, I was like, I can't be ashy on this uh, (laughs) – on the screen. (laughs) I love it.
0: it.
1: Well, what kind of maybe some parting advice do you have for coaches that are, you know, they just just want to do better, man. And, you know, you've been in the face of some pretty bad, the bad parts of our sport. Uh, What just maybe some parting advice, maybe for coaches that are listening?
2: Well, uh, you know, one, I would just like to say, you know, um, you know, thank you for dedicating this much time, energy to the sport. Um, You know, it often is a thankless job. It is a job that requires so much, you know, emotional, you know, uh, kind of energy, like physical energy, um, you know, and so the role that you're playing in these young men and women's lives is really, really important. And I know that a lot of you know that kind of, uh, you know, um, intuitively, but you may not always get the external validation that you know, what you're saying, what you're doing does have a huge impact. So I do want to kind of just recognize that, and, and to you know say that you know it is appreciated, and to just encourage you all to continue to be those you know really important role models. I know for me, one of the big things when I was selecting a college um, was making sure that I had a strong relationship um, with the coaching staff um, because I I knew that I was going to be uh, you know spending more time with them than anybody any other adults you know at a university and i I really wanted to make sure that i felt comfortable and safe and 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 felt like it was a place where i can grow um you know you're serving you know a vital role i mean you know kids come to you guys at 18 19 they're not done growing up yet (laughs) and y'all know that (laughs) you know um and so um you're helping to you're helping to raise you know these young men and women and, you know, families are entrusting you with that responsibility. And so um, just know that you have kind of an awesome impact and um, that the lessons, the messages, you know, you may not get the immediate uh, kind of impact uh, or sorry, the immediate reaction, but the kids are, are, are taking it. in. And I know many coaches probably have the experience of seeing an, a former athlete, you know, Five, 10, 15 years later, say, hey, you know, you know, that thing that you told me in the in the weight room, you know, I carry that with me. And you're like, I don't remember saying that. But like, okay, you know. <laughs> so um, so so I will say, um, you know, I will say that. Now, in terms of what the main takeaway would be, I would I, you know, you say relationships, um, I like to say community, you know, really kind of building that community, right? Um, so helping to encourage the development of, a, of an alumni community, mm-hmm. figuring out how you can create a sense of community with your team um, that makes sense for your team. Um, so even if you know the distance athletes practice in the morning because you're in the South and it gets hot in the afternoon And the sprinters can't be dealt with anything below fifty-five degrees, so they have to practice. (laughs) They have to practice in the evening. Um, You know, the throwers have to like throw on the other side of campus because that's the only place that has you know a throwing circle. Um, You know, there are there are ways to create opportunities for athletes and for the team to come together and to be in in community. And so, um, you know, thinking about that and thinking about how you can create those opportunities. Um, I think it's important and, you know, really making sure that, um, you know, because it's, we, you know, we all kind of do our own things, our own silos, but at the end of the day, this is a, you know, kind of one sport, one track and field, um, you know, uh, thing. And I, I have a lot of, you know, respect for the fact that track and field is a collection of all these different modalities and disciplines and, and, and we're all working extremely hard in different ways, you know, so you know, distance athletes may be doing repeat, you know, uh, you know, thousand meter reps on the track until, you know, they're blue in the face. And whereas another athlete is doing, um, you know, really explosive uh, kind of, uh, you know, do, doing lifts and doing plyometrics and, and things of that nature that um, will help them with their explosive disciplines that still, you know, they're working equally as hard as just, you know, in a different capacity. And so, um, I think creating ways where we can kind of celebrate that diversity Um, um, and it doesn't need to be, I wouldn't look at it if I'm a coach as like a burden, like, oh God, I had to do this extra thing. Mm -hmm. I would look at it as, you know, just a, you know just an opportunity, you know, um, to kind of um, be able to commune with each other in a way that um, can just, you know, make everyone feel like they are a part of this, you know, one collective goal, which, I mean, which they are. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, so those are kind of the two things that I would say, um, and I don't think it's going to require as much energy um, as coaches may think, um, you know, but just wanted to also just encourage um, coaches to continue to have kind of the awesome impact, you know, that they, that they have on, on, on these young men and women's lives, particularly the young men and women who come from more challenging circumstances. And I know coaches have, you know, um, have had athletes um, in the past and currently, that fit in those categories. Um, what you say, what you do, how you treat them has a huge, huge impact. And so I do also want to uh, kind of highlight that.
1: Well said, my man. Coach, you know, speaking directly to you, it is sometimes a thankless job. And we are sometimes surprised by when we are thanked. Uh, so we do get down sometimes. I understand. I did it for 10 years. I get it rewind the last three minutes and listen to Russell, because what Russell represents right there is your athletes that are on your team right now, and the athletes that will be on your team next year, next year, next year, he, he, he was in it, he was an athlete, he, he, he exactly what he's talking is, how is what he, he's, he's envisioning his college coach right now. I know you are, it's, you're like, man, that, uh, I don't know, was, did you get coached by Fred, or who was actually your coach? So
2: I was coached by Steve Dolan, and who Steve now Dolan, coaches yes. at the University of Penn, yes, yes, and yes. my last year at Princeton, I was coached by J. Uh, and vigilante and oh, um yeah it is right yeah yeah, yeah, right. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah uh, so um, great
1: giant so I know you're envisioning those two and the impact that they they made on you so coach just go back and listen to that man because that is everybody on your team right now if they could articulate it that way they 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 would and if they can't right now it's just because they haven't got the maturity to say it we don't sometimes see it in the moment uh when we're actually being coached uh, Russell you know one of the cool aspects of being the host of this podcast is I get to at certain points represent a lot of other people like if you could imagine like a line up of a thousand people behind me uh, it's a great honor and responsibility of mine to to do that representation Uh, you know I get to thank coaches that come on our show on a weekly basis for exactly what you said there you know the impact they make exactly where their two feet are is awe inspiring and so needed not in today's world because it it needed in yesterday's world too and it'll be (laughs) needed in tomorrow's world so you play just a big role i get to do that now with you my friend um you know I, i get to represent now you know thousands of athletes that you have impacted here in the last 24 months and the thousands of athletes that you'll never see maybe not even ever know your name but that now get to go to the university of minnesota william and mary um, Brown University, Clemson—they don't even know that people—and I know it's never just one person. I get that. There's a team, you know, Arthur and other people. Uh, but right now, you're the face of it, buddy. But so I, I get to just say thank you from literally thousands of athletes, thousands of coaches uh, for what you do selflessly. Uh, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say you have not been uh, financially enriched. You're not rich uh, from this. This—I don't—I don't know how. If you did, please let us know. We'd love to uh,
2: not figure out <laughs> that aspect on our own, but. Uh, <laughs> not 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 rich but uh but 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 I'm good, so yeah. oh, thank you <laughs> so, so,
1: well you, you have enriched other people's lives, man, and so from the track and field community, for those who do know you, who maybe only know you by name uh, or even don't know you at all, man, thank you you know we need warriors like you to lead the way, and so just so thankful that you know you, you took up that mantle, you could easily just said, man, that really sucks and moved back onto your your normal job right uh, so I'm so uh, thankful and grateful that you. You did that selflessly, man. Thank you so much from all of us.
2: Well, thank you so much. And just, and um, yeah, I've said this in other podcasts and in other media outlets, but what my source was for all of this and what my source was, it still is to this day, was thinking and fighting for that kid whose name I will never know. And and you, you hit that point exactly. And, um, you know, that's what I was thinking about, you know, with the Brown fight um, and throughout, you know, all of these fights where, you know, the outcome was certainly not certain, you know, and it was really scary to venture into the unknown and, and to look into the faces of parents and alumni and, and students and see the, the kind of desperation in their eyes to get their team back and to know i had to look at them and say, I am gonna try my best. I don't know if this is going to work, but I'm gonna try my darndest. And, you know, thankfully, prayerfully, um, you know, it, it, it did work out um, in a way that was, um, that got the outcome that we were looking for. But what was most important is, you know, that kid, his name, again, I will never know, and that's okay. Because for me, what's most important there's going to be kids who go to college, and you know they win conference titles, and they break records, and they win national championships. But at the end of the day, it's really important that these kids have access to these awesome academic opportunities. Yeah, yeah. And to me, it doesn't matter if it's at a Princeton or if it's at a, um, a, 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 a you know the third ranked state university in, in a university in, in, in a state. All these academic opportunities are really, really important and can provide life-changing uh, kind of kind of outcomes for you know for these kids. And so I know that these experiences uh, are vitally important, and um, that that is that is what drove me to dedicate so much time, you know, you know, when I wasn't working, uh, so much time when I was working. Um, you know, to this issue and, you know, I'm really, really thankful that so many people from across this country um, have supported the work that, you know, we've collectively done together and specifically for the awesome group of alumni and parents and students that I worked with at each of these institutions. um, That they were open and willing enough to trust me, uh, Mm -hmm. someone who was a stranger, um, and were were are okay with being led down a path that was uncertain, and that's really hard to do. To ask people, hey, please trust me. I don't know if this is gonna work, but please trust me, and, and, and we're gonna try our best to try to make this happen. And like I said, prayerfully, um, you know, we got the outcome that we were that we were hoping for.
1: Well, oh, man, you are fierce, and I am so thankful to be on the same team as you. I would not want to go up against you, man, and the, the way you bring community together. I love that word. That's kind of the theme for me of this, this uh, podcast episode is community, man. I love it. I love it. And I'm just so thankful for you, man. Thanks for joining us today on the Gill Connections podcast. I'm so thankful for you. Thank you.
2: Thank
0: you. Thanks, Mike. What an incredible journey coach has been on. So awesome to hear their story in their own words. Tremendous proof of the positive effects coaches make on a daily basis. Help us spread the word of this great journey by sharing on your favorite social media channel. And don't forget to take a minute to rate and review the podcast. You just might get a shout out on a future episode. That's it for today. Join us next week when we'll connect you with another amazing coach.